I'm going to ask you to uh, find in your Bibles the book of James. And and once you've found James, which is kind of between Hebrews, well, it's not kind of between Hebrews, it's between Hebrews and 1 Peter. So if you're paging around, find one of those. Hebrews, turn right. 1 Peter, turn left. And you'll find it. It's not very often at the door that we just do one-off sermons, but this is going to be one of those days. Um, but the nice thing, I, I think the magnificent thing really about the Word of God is that you can put down anywhere, anytime, and if your heart's ready and your eyes are open and you're humble in your heart, the Word of God will speak to you. And so that's what we're going to rely on today is turn to James chapter 4. We'll be looking at verse 11 there in a minute. But <clears throat> on Monday, October 29th of 2018 at 6.20 a.m., Lion Air Flight 610 took off from Jakarta, Indonesia. Its destination was Pangkal, Penang, the largest city of Indonesia's Bangka Belitung Islands. Now, you should pay attention to this because there's going to be a geography test, including spelling, after this. Well, 12 minutes after takeoff, the plane crashed into the Java Sea, killing 189 people. Nearly five months later, Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302 took off from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, on March 10th, 2019. Its destination was Nairobi, Kenya. But six minutes after takeoff, the plane crashed near the town of Bishoftu, Ethiopia, killing all 157 people on board. Now, both jets that crashed were Boeing 737 MAX 8s. That's a variant of the best-selling airplane in history and one of the safest. What happened? Why did it happen? What could have prevented the loss of 346 lives? Well, it takes years, really, for all of the data to be evaluated, but it seems certain at this point that both airplanes had faulty flight sensors that that gave false information, a false perception of what the airplane's attitude was in the air. The sensors were saying that the nose was, was pointing up, but it wasn't. And so, since this faulty data fed, fed into the automatic correction systems and flight management systems of the airplane, what, the, what these ma flight management systems did was they pointed the nose down and the airplanes flew right into the ground. Likewise, as we turn to James today, James' point in this entire section is that our pride like the defective airplane sensors, distorts our perception of God and sends faulty signals from our hearts. And the results are disastrous. You know, the Bible says a lot about pride, but I, I, and, and we could go there, but we're not. I just want to focus on four words. Pride goes before destruction. Pride doesn't go before trouble. It doesn't go before inconvenience. It doesn't go before, uh, you know, wishing things would be a different way. It goes before destruction, which is annihilation. Pride precedes trouble, big trouble. 
And it's, it's pride that's that root sin that distorts and twists and misleads us to fly our planes into the ground. Now, when I was a kid, I'm gonna, there's just a few of you in here that might remember this, but we had a thing called a Viewmaster. Does anybody remember Viewmasters? Come on. Oh, wow. I'm surprised. Come on. Keep them up. That's going to date you. That's all right. Well, Viewmasters were these little things. I mean, they were totally low tech. So you kids, millennials and all and anybody around that whole thing. Anybody under what? 50? Okay. Forget about it. Because what Viewmasters were, were these little things that you put on and you look towards the light and you pop this little disc in and you could click it, right, Dave? And the pictures would rotate around. And I don't know how we had one of these, but I do remember one picture. It was a picture of the Taj Mahal. And when you put that thing in that Viewmaster and looked at it, the Taj Mahal was just right there. Now, I was seven or eight and I didn't know what a Taj or a Mahal was, but it was an impressive building. So being kids, we weren't, you know, content to just look at the pictures in there. So we pulled that thing out and we decided that we ought to, what we ought to do is turn it around and look in the wrong end. And what that did, it's like looking in the wrong end of binoculars, right? It just distorts everything. And so our game was to do this, was to, put, to look through the wrong end of the Viewmaster and run around the house until you hit something. Because the things that were, th- things that were close seemed like they were far off. And, and what it did was it totally distorted everything. And like looking through the wrong end of binoculars, wouldn't you want to know if you're about to fly the plane of your soul into the ground? If you're getting faulty signals, wouldn't you want to know it? Or to know the symptoms? to understand what's really going on, what the true picture is, and what to do about it? Well, that's James' concern. Let's read James chapter 4, picking up in verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. There are likely many symptoms of a proud heart, but James focuses on two of them here. The first is speaking against a brother and in verse 11. And the second is boasting about ourselves in verse 16. And both of these symptoms involve what we say, what, we comes, what comes out of our mouth. And that should immediately remind us that these are matters of the heart. Because Jesus said that it's what's in the heart in Matthew 15, out of the abundance of the heart, what's filling the heart is what's going to come out of the mouth. The mouth, the, the mouth is a revealer of the heart. What comes out of our mouths is what's in our hearts. 
Well, the first thing we notice is, is James is talking about speaking against other Christians. Brethren, those who have believed the gospel and have faith in Jesus Christ. And even apparently among this relatively new group of Christians, there had already broken out a culture of criticism. So the second thing that we notice about this is that speaking against is a really broad term. I mean, it is broad. It's a catch-all. It's James' way of saying this is not limited to any one thing. It's not limited to slander, which is, you know, false statements intended to damage people. It's not limited to criticism. It's not limited to gossip behind another's back. It's not limited to a, a frontal verbal assault. It's not limited to complaining about others. It's not limited to a habit of doing so or just an occasional word here and there. What James is talking about here includes the deliberate jab and the slip of the tongue. It includes the deserved comment as well as the casual observation. It's intentionally broad, very broad. And it's telltale of what's in our hearts. This, this term is so broad that it prohibits our self-described helpful criticism or just stating what everybody already knows or sharing a concern or, of course, our righteous duty to expose hypocrisy in others. This term is broad enough that it disallows our permission slips. Permission slips that sound like this. Well, it's okay to say if it's true. Or it's okay to say because everyone else is doing it. Or it's okay if it's not behind their back but to their face. Or it's okay if we've convinced ourselves that our motives are pure. And here's one that we all need to be care careful of, especially. It's okay to speak against someone if you're a leader, right? James blows all of that up with one very broad term. Speaking against is a sweepingly broad term, and it prohibits any and all speech that's not loving towards our brother. And and the interesting thing about here is that is that with this going on, James doesn't warn about the damage done to the victims of this speech. He doesn't talk about the damage done to the church at large by this kind of speech, although there is, and he talks about it elsewhere in James where he says the tongue is a fire and sets the whole world on fire. But that's not his focus here. What, what James is talking about here is, is not the damage done to the victims or to the church, but his focus is on what it reveals in the heart of those that are saying it, that are speaking against a brother. In other words, you can put it like this. What Sally says about Susie says more about Sally than it does Susie. Speaking against our brother is symptomatic of pride in our hurt, in our heart. And here's how this works out. Look in, in, the, in the latter part of verse 11. He who speaks against a brother, here's what's really going on now, right? We're not talking about the distortion. Here's what's really going on, James tells us. 
He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. So what we may perceive as harmless talk is actually judging our brother and judging the law. That's what's really going on. That's the true picture. It's exalting ourselves above the law. Three times in verse 11, James uses the word law. Now, we Christians are often uncomfortable even with the term law when it comes to our faith. The thinking goes like this. Well, weren't the requirements of the law an Old Testament thing? And didn't Christ set us free from the law? And weren't the requirements, or didn't Jesus fulfill the law for us? Well, why then is James admonishing these New Testament Christians for not being doers of the law? Listen to this carefully. The moral law that God reveals in Scripture is always binding on us. Our redemption is from the curse of the law not our duty to obey it. We are justified not because of our obedience to the law, but in order that we may become obedient to God's law. To love Christ is to keep His commandments, and His commandment was that you love one another. And that's what James is is referring to here. In particular is what he calls in chapter 2, verse 8, the royal law of love. Deuteronomy, um, or I'm sorry, Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's called the royal law, or you could call it the king of all laws. That you love your neighbor as yourself. And that... James says, when we speak against the brother, we're setting ourselves above that law and releasing ourselves from our duty. And here's the problem. Here's the problem with that. The, that pride alienates us from the grace of the gospel. And here's how that works. It's the duty of the law that drives us to the gospel of grace. We need gra- the grace of the gospel to enable us to love. And we need the grace of the gospel to forgive us when we don't. But if we set ourselves above the law as judges, we perceive no need for the gospel. Because it's the law that reminds us that we're sinners and daily needed the grace of the gospel. Through the law, Paul says, comes the knowledge of sin. But if we're above the royal law of love and not under it, we don't hear it. And consequently, are blind, blind dead to our daily need of the gospel. So whatever, anything, everything, any mindset, attitude, or perception that blinds us to our daily need of the gospel is deadly. Because the gospel is a fountain of grace. We must go to every day. The fountain of forgiveness the fountain of power for obedience. We sing this song, don't we, that says, every hour I need you. 
My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. Every day we need the gospel to enable us to love and to forgive us when we don't. Well, pride, by setting ourselves up as judges over law, can alienate us from our need of the gospel on a daily basis, but pride also corrupts our affections. By pointing out the failure of others, the proud fail to perceive that they themselves are failing at the main thing, which is love. It's the greatest commandment to love. All the law, Jesus said, is summed up in the law. It's the one thing without which Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, I am nothing. Setting ourselves above the royal law is a rejection of the very core of the gospel. And it's to miss the main thing. To fail at what's most important. You know, when Paul says, without love, I'm nothing. There's a pretty impressive list of things there in 1 Corinthians 13, right? He says, if I understand all things, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I have all faith, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, without love, I'm nothing. Listen, if you are doing all the right things in the Christian life, checking all the boxes, but failing to love, you're failing. You're failing. And speaking against a brother strikes at the very essence of Christianity. It's a death blow to believers in the testimony of the church. Jesus said this. He said, By this the world will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Do you want to know why the church, any church, is not attractive to lost souls who are desperate for love? It's because the church has become judges instead of lovers. But here is the reality, right? About judging. God says there is one, only one, lawgiver and judge. So James, the, the distortion has become so great that James has to tell Christians that there's really only one God. Because they've begun to act like them. There's one lawgiver and judge, and James says, you're not him. And then he asks a rhetorical question. Who are you? You could say it this way, but who are you? Pride not only distorts our perception of God, but our perception of ourselves as well. You're not qualified to judge. You didn't bestow the law to men out of your own moral perfections. Nor can you administer it in perfect justice. Nor can you save or destroy. Judging is not something to do to pass the time. Judging is serious business. As a matter of fact, Jesus said judging is something to be avoided, didn't he? He said, judge not, lest you be judged. So condemning others is, well, that's the first thing. And that's what comes out of the mouth. All of these different things. Speaking against. Maybe you see yourself in there. The second symptom is boasting in ourselves. And in verse 13, it says, Come now, you who say 
Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit. You say, well, that didn't sound like me. I don't talk like that. Well, let's look at it a different way. If you're like me, you have a phone. And on that phone you have a calendar that stretches out who knows how far. And again, like me, there are lots of plans, events, dates, commitments with places and times and entries far into the future that say, in essence, I'll be there. I'll do that. Now I ask you, Can you compare that to what James is saying here? We will go to such and such a city. We will stay a year. We will engage in business. We will make a profit. And I ask you to, as I ask myself, did you consider God's sovereign control over your life and affairs as you entered each one? I didn't. I just presume. I will. I can. I am. I'll be there. Can I show you the source just really briefly of this this whole self-sovereign thinking? I can do it. I'll be there. I will this. I will that. And Isaiah 14, and, and something that is very pointedly about Satan, uh, it's, it says this in, in, in the 12th verse, Speaking to Satan, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nation. But you said in your heart, which is James is what James is saying about us. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, the prophet says, you'll be thrust down to shield the recesses of the pit. And that same pride is found in the parable about the rich man in Luke 12, right? Jesus said in Luke 12, 16, and he told them a parable. The land of a rich man was very productive and he began reasoning with himself saying, what shall I do? since I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you're a fool, because this very night your soul is required of you now. And who will own what you have prepared? R.C. Sproul has remarked that most Christians salute the sovereignty of God. But most Christians believe in the sovereignty of man. This is practical atheism. The Bible does come in planning ahead, but not without acknowledging God's sovereign will as primary. As God's, what God has determined to be primary. The backdrop against which all decisions and plans are made. Not just an add-on. Because you know what the contemporary Christian rendition of God's sovereignty is? 
God, this is what I want to do. This is what what I see. This is what I want. These are my plans. Now bless them. The Bible says, in all your ways, acknowledge Him. All your ways. All the way through. All the plans. All the thinking. The fear of God. Respecting who He is and His position is the beginning of wisdom. Every part, every part of the process and the plan. So here's the reality. Verse 14, He says, you don't know Yet, sorry, that's a big yet. Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a while and then vanishes away. You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. Our friend, Mac McCarter, some of you call him Mike, but I've known him as 35 years as Mac, so it's going to be Mac for me. Just last Wednesday, went out to do a simple task to burn some yard debris. He did everything right. He got this permit. He got all the tools he needed. He had water available there. Everything was just right. And then all of a sudden, the wind whipped up. Completely out of his control. It ended up burning about 15 acres and taking out his neighbor's house. A little over two weeks ago, Robin and Heather Davis from this fellowship, and for those of you that just have the connection, they're the Walmart people that God's blessed us with. Well, they were celebrating an anniversary, I think, and took a cruise to Hawaii. But a few days out from their destination, Robin fell ill. They took him off ship when they got on board and uh, I mean when they got to their destination and and diagnosed that he needed some medical attention really quick and they flew him back to the hospital in Portland where the doctors discovered there are two massive brain tumors. The today that those folks woke up to is drastically different than anything that they could have anticipated. These events, the fire, the medical issues, were not in their day planner. But God's with them and in them and through all this. So, please pray for them. But the point is we must acknowledge, we must acknowledge that our plans, our events, and our dates are all entered in pencil in God's sovereign calendar. Moses asked God to, in Psalm 90, to teach us to number our days so that we might present a heart of wisdom to you. What pride doesn't want us to perceive and understand is that our life is a vapor. Actually, it says here, you are a vapor. That's not a metaphor. James is not saying you're like a metaphor or you're as a metaphor. He says your life is a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. I, where we live, uh, I have the, a, a view of the river. And in the mornings when I get up, I can see sometimes, especially if it's been colder at night, 
and the water's a little warmer, that there's a little mist hanging about this far above the river. And as the river goes along, this mist is actually kind of drawn along by the flow of the river. But from where I sit, I can see that down around the bend where this vapor is going, the sun's over there. And that the moment that that vapor hits that sunlight, it's gone. That's what the span of our lives is like. He says, the certainty, James says, if you want to put it like this, the certainty of our lives is as rock solid as vapor. But pride causes us to think too much of ourselves. Mark Twain, not one of my favorite theologians, but a a guy I like to quote, said that the graveyards are full of indispensable people. Vapors are not only transient, here one second, gone the next, they're insignificant while they're here. James is here saying that the world, even your world, is not about you. You were not made to be the center. You don't belong in the center. It was not made for you, nor was any part of it controlled by you. In eternal terms, you and I are lighter than air. James says, but as it is, in verse 16, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's sin. James wants us to know what to do about pride in our heart. He's not looking for agreement, but action. It's like the guy that says after the sermon, he says, well, you know, I agreed with everything that the preacher said. Well, agreement's important, but it's just part. Jesus said in a parable about a foolish man in Matthew chapter 7, there was a wise man who built his house on a rock and a foolish man who built his house on sand. Both heard his words, but the wise man, it says, acted on the words, and the foolish man only heard. So what is it that James wants us to do? There are things that we cannot do and things that we can and must do. We cannot say to ourselves, you know, I see from what I've been exposed to today that I have a problem with pride. So I'm going to be more aware of that and I'm going to improve on it. I'm going to fix it. I'll make it better. I'll give it my best shot. But to believe that we can reform or improve or somehow tame pride is itself prideful. It's just another I will statement. The Bible says pride will not be reformed or subdued by us. The attempt to do so in our own power shows that we're still overcome by pride. I can do this. The Bible says we can't kill pride on our own. We can't even wound it. We're powerless against pride. So if that's what we can't do, what is it that James wants us to do? Well, we kind of sat down today in the middle of a book, in the middle of a chapter, in the middle of a, of, a, of a thought, 
And let's look back a few verses to what James says we can and must do. In verse 10, it says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. That's the world right side up. But you know what James is saying? James is saying is that the way up is down. Or to put it a different way, down is the way up. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will exalt you. And that seems, you know, counterintuitive, doesn't it? Right? I mean, but to say that, uh, you know, that, that, that we, we, we humble ourselves and we put ourselves down before the presence of God so that God will lift us up. Because pride says the way up is up. Is to exalt yourself. To gain all that you can. But the Bible says, for us Christians, that we gain by losing. We receive by giving. We become the greatest of all by becoming the servant of all. We even live, the Bible says, by dying. Jesus humbled Himself. And God exalted Him. I'm going to read a short passage. You need not turn there from Philippians chapter 2. It says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this is the world right side up. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name. The way up is down. You know, Jesus had the right to be judge. As a matter of fact, all judgment had been committed to the Son. But because Jesus came to save, He didn't judge. He says, I judge no one. Jesus had the right to act sovereignly as the God-man on earth. He could do as He wanted. But, but, but Jesus spoke only that which He heard from the Father, and He did only that which the Father, which He saw the Father do. He trusted God completely. And His humility was demonstrated in obedience. The first thing James wants us to do is to believe. To believe. And the complete dependence and the grace and the power that's found in the gospel of Jesus. It's not about what I can do about this, but what Jesus has done. The answer is to believe that Jesus was a sacrifice for your sin and His resurrection power alone is more than equal to any sin in your life, even pride. Believe it. James also in verse 8 says, draw near to God. And there's only one way, the Bible tells us, to draw near to God, and that's through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Believe. Believe that God is who He says He is. Believe that Jesus did what He said He did. Harry Ironside once famously remarked that the gospel is not good advice to follow, but it's good news to be believed. Pride. 
will deprive us of our daily need to believe the good news, to confuse us so that we don't perceive our need of the gospel, to pervert our perception of God and ourselves so that we fly our planes into the ground. Now, as humans, we can be lulled into foolishness by what psychologists call normalcy bias. Well, what is normalcy bias? Well, it's pretty easy to explain. It's the assumption that today is going to be pretty much like yesterday. And that tomorrow is going to be pretty much like today. And next year, like this year, and so on. Well, 39 years ago, next week, on May 18th of 1980, a fellow by the name of Harry Truman, not necessarily the one you're thinking about, but the guy that lived at Spirit Mountain Lodge on Mount St. Helens that May in 1980. He'd been there for 52 years. And the geologists had come repeatedly and warned him that because of these these tremors that were happening at the mountain, that there was going to be an earthquake at some point. But here he said, that. He said, I've lived here all my life. I've experienced these quakes. This is just like last time. Nothing's going to happen. It's no big deal. Well, about 9 o'clock in the morning, Spear Mountain Lodge was vaporized by a thousand degree blast and buried under 150 feet of rubble coming down the mountain at 90 miles an hour. He'd seen it all before and assumed that this time would be like last time. Now some of you have heard the gospel before and you heard it again today. But you've Delayed responding. You refuse to act like Jesus said on what you've heard. Thinking maybe another time, maybe, maybe some other day. And presuming that tomorrow will be like yesterday. Normalcy bias. But you should know that in Acts chapter 17, it's declared that there is a day circled in red on heaven's calendar. A date unknown to anyone, but a date that's not subject to revision or delay. There's a man appointed to judge the world on that day. The man that God raised from the dead, his name is Jesus. That's in heaven. That's on his calendar, which is not in pencil. But today, the only day that we're guaranteed of, the door of salvation is open wide to any and all who will repent of their sins and believe that Jesus died for their sins and was raised from the dead. Today, He offers a free gift of salvation. But the sovereign God has promised that Jesus is returning to judge the world That day's fixed. Now, as you consider today's open door and the gift of salvation that's offered, I just want you to remember two things as you think about it. The sovereign God has set a day and your life 
is just a vapor. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the straight-up talk from Your Word about who You are and who we are and how pride in our hearts, Lord, gets it all upside down. And we want to repent of that, Jesus, because it skews everything that we looked at. It distorts all of our lives. And it deprives us, Lord, of going to Your Gospel daily. So, Father, have mercy on us. Give us, Lord, to humble ourselves before You like Jesus and to receive all that You have. And know, Lord, that exaltation is a thing You do for those who humble themselves. We give You thanks for that. In Jesus' name, Amen.